0: So, many of you on this retreat, or quite a number of you on this retreat, are fairly new to meditation and new to these practices. So I thought I'd like to um, take a little bit of time at the beginning of the talk this evening just to give a, a little bit of background and a bit of context for the the meditation practice. And and again, if we if we think of meditation as being the the mindfulness and the investigation factors. Um, I think we can, um, to a certain extent, include the chikung. Um, I think tomorrow evening Brad will speak more specifically about the chikung. So the the this this practice of insight meditation or vipassana comes from the teachings of the Buddha, and um, as many of you are aware, and some of you. Perhaps not the the Buddha lived about um two thousand five hundred and fifty years ago in um in North India and southern Nepal, and he was born into the the kind of the the head family of the tribe of the clan, and as such, he grew up with a considerable degree of wealth and power and good education and um um, fine clothing and delicious food and all the best of everything that was available at the time and, and in that place. And he grew up as the son of the, of the, head, the head man, the, the ruler, the, the sometimes referred to as the king. And as such, he was groomed by his father to take over the kingdom. And as he, as he grew up amidst all this wealth and all this luxury and all this power, he came to a point where he realized that even with all this, and, and by this time he had a, a beautiful wife and, and a little baby son and just had everything going for him. You know all the, all the things that we can think of that could make a perfect life, he, he had it. And yet... He came to a point where he realized that even with all this, there was an inner dissatisfaction. There was an inner dis ease, discomfort, an inner angst, an inner restlessness, and all of this outer stuff couldn't couldn't settle this. And so he. Um, the 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 story is that he went out on some occasions with his attendant to have a look see what was going on outside the palace uh, how did how did the real people live in in their real daily lives and what he saw when he went out was uh, first of all he saw an old person and um, and he he wasn't quite sure what this was and he so his, his his father had really protected him and really done everything he could to make him happy so he didn't want him to know about getting old and so the Buddha asked his attendant what's this and his attendant said this is, this is an old person um, one day you're going to be like that and the Buddha was a bit shocked at that prospect and thought about it and, mm, not so good then on another occasion, he saw a sick person and uh, asked his attendant, what's this? And his attendant said, this is a sick person. At some point in your life, the odds are you're going to be sick too. You're going to face this also. And Buddha didn't like this prospect either. Went out another time and saw a dead person and asked his attendant about this. And the attendant said, Everybody dies. You too. One day, you too shall die. And of course, the Buddha didn't like that prospect either, as as many of us many of us don't. Many of us are quite uncomfortable with the thought of, of dying. And then, um, so the Buddha was reflecting on all this um, all these horrible things that were going to happen to him, and reflecting on his life in the palace. And he went out one more time with his attendant. And, and on this, this fourth excursion, he saw um, what's, what's referred to now in, in India as a sadhu. And any of you who have been to India will be familiar with sadhus. Sadhus are people who have renounced their home life, renounced their families, and renounced all their possessions and set off on spiritual quest wandering about the countryside, doing different practices, really looking at their lives, exploring life, and and seeing if they can come to some understanding, some understanding of the more important questions of life, such as, who am I? What is life? What's it all about? What's my purpose? And so the the Buddha on this fourth excursion saw the sadhu, and his attendant explained to him what, what the sadhu was about. And the Buddha determined that that was the life for him. He, he wanted to go off on this spiritual quest. And, and he, he determined to find a way of living, a way of being in the world, free from this inner angst, this inner restlessness, this inner dis, dis-ease, dissatisfaction. And so he did just that. He left the palace, left his family, gave up his inheritance, left behind everything. And went off and became a, a sadhu, a, a wandering spiritual seeker. And he went off and he studied with with um some of the, the best known teachers at the time and he was dissatisfied with with uh with them. He um in, in each case, he got to a point where his teacher said, you've got it, that's it, you know, you, you're done. Sit up here with me and teach. And, and, the, and the Buddha would, would look at his life at that point, and what he recognized was that when he followed the instructions, and generally, I'll come, I'll come back to this a little bit later, but generally the, um, the, what he was taught by his teachers was about concentration concentration practices. And, and what he learned was that with strong concentration, this sense of angst, this sense of dis-ease, this sense of dissatisfaction would go. It was gone, completely gone. Not a trace of it. And his teachers would say, that's it, you got it, that's wonderful. But what he noticed was that as soon as the concentration was gone, all of this stuff came back. How many have noticed that in your own lives? Maybe today in the meditation, you know, we sit down and we meditate and we get nice and peaceful and calm and everything is lovely, and then we get up, and something happens, and boom, it's all right back. And so the so the Buddha the Buddha said uh, the Buddha thought to himself, this just isn't the answer. There has to be a resolution to all this, and um, I might might introduce here uh, another pali word and the word is dukkha it's spelled d u k k h a and this word dukkha is most commonly translated as suffering and um, and certainly suffering is a, is an aspect or what we consider to be suffering is an aspect of dukkha but the the broader meaning of dukkha is just this inner angst this in the, the inability to be at rest and to be at ease in life it's basically wanting things to be different than they are has anyone not experienced dukkha at some point today <laughs> <laughs> yeah. wanting things to be different than they are not being able to be completely at rest in life completely at ease in life just as it is and that, that restlessness and, and so often the, the compulsion and the drive that gets stirred up in us to get something else, to be something else, to become something else, or to get rid of something, all of that is Dukkha. And, and the Buddha, when he set off on his quest, his, 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 his goal was to know the ending of Dukkha, to eradicate Dukkha from his life and so he recognized that with these concentration practices when he was concentrated the dukkha was gone but as soon as the concentration was gone the dukkha came right back and so he he set off initially with with five friends and then on his own to to really look into this to really explore this and and see what he could come up with? What understanding could he come up with? And and finally, <coughs> excuse me, finally um, one night sitting under a Bodhi tree, under a, a fig tree in Bodhgaya in India, he had a series of insights, a series of revelations, and by the end of this night he was able to say with full confidence, uh, ah, done. I've done what needed to be done. I've I've arrived at I I know I've know I know the ending of dukkha. And um, and then he he spent uh, he spent another seven weeks around the tree, reflecting on his practices, reflecting on his past, reflecting on on his awakening, on these insights, and he he finally came to the decision that he would make an attempt to to teach this to pass it on to others and and he formulated he uh, he he put, he put into a, he put his insights into a formula which he could then present to others and the the most basic of this formula he referred to as the four noble truths and and it's 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 what he he pointed out as being four truths in life. And the first of these truths is is very obvious, um, but very um, very crucial, and one that that I think often we have we have trouble opening to and find difficult to accept, and certainly difficult to give attention to, and that is the fact that in life we do experience dukkha a very simple obvious fact but something that we tend to not give a much much attention to we tend to give far more attention to trying trying to escape from dukkha than to the fact that we experience dukkha and in giving the first noble truth the buddha was inviting us to really open to this as a fact, as part of our existence. And then the second noble truth, so having, having explored dukkha and, and realizing and remembering that the Buddha's goal was to, to know the ending of dukkha. And so what he recognized was that in order to know the ending of dukkha, he would have to know what's causing it. What's the cause of dukkha? And he realized that in order to end it, he would have to eliminate the cause. And so he explored, he explored dukkha and, and the, the teachings and the meditation practices are really an invitation for us to, to do the same as the Buddha, not just to take what he said not just to take up what he said as, okay, this is, this is what it is, but to really explore for ourselves and, and come to our own experiential understanding and knowing and insight. And so when he explored what's, what's the cause, what's, what's beneath this dukkha, what's, what's supporting this dukkha, he came to realize the second noble truth, and the second noble truth, as he presented it, is that the cause of dukkha is craving and clinging. Craving and clinging. And there's craving when there's obsessing to get something or to get rid of something. When there's the, the, the clinging, the holding on, holding on to something, holding on to anything, holding on to um, objects, you know, getting attached to objects. Uh, holding on to other people, relationships, clinging, ah. um, holding on to ideas, opinions, views, beliefs, imaginations, holding on to anything where there's clinging. The Buddha recognized there is dukkha because where there's where there's clinging, there's there's tightening, there's holding. There isn't freedom. There's no freedom in clinging. So the cause, the second noble truth, the cause of dukkha is craving and clinging, holding on, attachment, grasping, being attached to, identifying strongly with. And then Recognizing this, seeing this, seeing this in a way that for the Buddha there was the ability to just release that hold, to let go. In the letting go, in the letting go comes the third noble truth and the third noble truth is the ending of dukkha. And so with the third noble truth, the Buddha came to know the ending of dukkha, just in that very simple releasing. And then the fourth noble truth arose out of his reflections after knowing the ending of dukkha. And the fourth noble truth is a path. The Buddha referred to it as the Eightfold Path. And it's a path with eight aspects to it, which of course are, it's not a, a linear path where you do one step and then the next and then the next. It's, it's eight aspects that, that all interact with one another and all affect one another. And this, this eightfold path is, um, is conveniently divided up into three sections, um, so, just for purposes of remembering, and, and for purposes of studying, and for purposes of practicing and applying the path in our lives, is divided into three sections, and the first section is is aspect of wisdom, aspect of wisdom, and the aspect of wisdom includes an understanding, a degree of understanding that yes there is dukkha in life and yes it is caused by craving and clinging and yes there can be an ending of it and 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 the wisdom i think i think for most of us it's it's that wisdom that brings us on retreat i think for most of us the reason we come on retreat whether we're really conscious of it or not the reason we come on retreat is because there is some awareness of dukkha in our lives and there is the wish to explore it and to end it the ways that we the ways that we go about this aren't always the most skillful or the most fruitful but but we have that wisdom we have that wisdom and, and the, the meditation practices and the, the exploration builds on the wisdom that we begin with. And hopefully the wisdom grows and grows to the point that we truly do know the ending of dukkha. So, the, the, so this wisdom aspect has this, this aspect of, of understanding that yes, there is dukkha and it has a cause and there can be an end to it. And then the other aspect of the wisdom section is the intention, our intention. And I'm not going to go into it now, but I just want to throw out that it's really helpful, I think, at times to reflect on our intentions in life. What's our intention? And sometimes sometimes on retreat, we can get kind of down, we can get kind of disheartened, we can get frustrated, we can feel, oh, it's not working, I'm not getting anywhere. And if you, if you, if you get into that, what I would suggest is just stop and take some time just to reflect on what's your intention in being here? And sometimes just the reflection on that can be a reminder of what it is that brought you to the retreat, or what it is that brought you to meditation, and that can help to to kind of revitalize and reinvigorate the practice. So this is the wisdom aspect, and um, the second the second of the of the three of the three groupings within the Eightfold Path is the morality aspect the ethical aspect. And it really very much has to do with how we are in the world. And and it consists of three parts, right speech, right action, and right livelihood. So this the second part of the path is really giving attention to our speech, to our actions in life, and to our livelihood. And, and really important to remember this and, and with this, to, to remember and to, to keep reminding ourselves that, that the path isn't just meditation. It's not just the formal meditation, the sitting and being on retreat. But the path really is a moment-to-moment, a moment, every day undertaking. It's really about giving attention to our lives from moment-to-moment. And with this second aspect, speech, action, and livelihood, the, the main guidance for this comes from the five precepts. And the five precepts are very much included in this, this ethical aspect. And the ethical aspect is, um, is almost completely encompassed in the five precepts. Okay, so the so this uh, this this everyday aspect of the path and and the application of the precepts as part of the path is very important. And then the third of the the third the third part is the meditation aspect, and of course this is what we're mostly concerned with on retreat. And this meditation aspect again has three parts to it. And one of these three parts is mindfulness. Okay, so mindfulness as, as one one of the eight parts of the eightfold path. And I spoke a little bit about mindfulness this morning, and we'll be speaking more about mindfulness during the retreat. So I'm not gonna I don't want to go into that so much right now. Um, another part, a second part of this of the meditation aspect is concentration. And I just want to briefly mention concentration because um, very often the view, very commonly the view of meditation is very much tied in with concentration. It's very common for 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 people to come on retreat and um and even though in the first couple of days I won't even say the word concentration, let alone giving any give any instructions about concentration. Inevitably, people will come and say, "My concentration is no good. I can't concentrate. I'm just not able to concentrate." And um, and 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 the reason for that, the reason for that is is very much tied in with a view, I think, of of what concentration is and how to get concentration. And there's there's very commonly the idea that that meditation is a kind of concentration, and it's about fixing the attention. Fixing the attention on a single object such that the attention just stays fixed on that and nothing else enters consciousness. So when we say um, give attention to the breathing in the belly, the idea comes, oh, I should be able to just focus on that, just concentrate on that and nothing else should happen and my mind should just go very clear and blank and I shouldn't have any thoughts and I shouldn't feel anything else in the body and I shouldn't hear any sounds. I should be able to just concentrate on the breathing in the belly. And with this idea, then we begin to apply willpower and effort and striving to try and get this. This isn't concentration. (laughs) It's, It's a form of concentration, but it's not the concentration that's part of the Eightfold Path. There's another kind of concentration that I would guess all of us are familiar with and we very easily forget about it as soon as we start thinking about meditation, and that's the kind of concentration that comes when you're doing something that you're really enjoying doing, like when you're reading a book that you're really enjoying or watching a movie that you're really enjoying, or having a conversation with someone who you really enjoy being with and 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 in in those moments, the mind, the attention the consciousness just very naturally comes to rest and comes to focus and it stays present in that and it's present it's present and focused and concentrated in a way that that there's there's joy and delight and happiness with it there's ease in it there's spaciousness in it and yet very focused Has everybody had this kind of experience? Everyone knows this kind of concentration? Okay, so when you're looking for concentration in your meditation, remember this as right concentration. Okay? The Buddha Buddha pointed out that the precondition for concentration is not tightness and narrowness and willpower and effort and striving, The precondition for concentration is happiness. So remember that. If you're you're looking at your experience saying there's no concentration, look and see, is there happiness? When we can connect with happiness, when we can connect with with joy, with delight, then the concentration will come just naturally. Naturally. And this is, this is very much affected by this, this factor that, that Brad and I have both referred to of investigation or interest or curiosity. The more interested we are in something, the greater the likelihood of happiness with it and the greater the possibility of that concentration that just settles in effortlessly. Okay, so, so remember this with concentration. And the third, the third part, the third part of this meditation aspect is right effort, effort. We've um, we've kind of emphasized today, and and there's a tendency on retreats to emphasize effortlessness. And the reason for this, the main reason for this, is, is because most of us are already pretty good at effort. We're well trained at making effort. We give ourselves lots of practice at making effort. And we're taught that making effort and trying harder is the way to achieve or to accomplish anything. And we tend to bring that to the meditation. We tend to bring trying harder, making more effort, getting more, achieving, acquiring, accumulating, the same habits that we have outside of retreat that we see bring suffering to us, bring dukkha to us, we have this peculiar tendency to bring those same ways of being into the retreat with us. And instead of applying it to our jobs or to (coughs) our studies or to our family life or to sports or whatever, we apply it to meditation. And we see it brings dukkha. And so because we're so skilled at that, and because the, the, wish, the wish is not to bring more dukkha on ourselves, but to know the ending of dukkha, the emphasis tends to go more to effortlessness, to settling, to relaxing, to calmness to spaciousness and allowing. But this one aspect of the path is right effort. And it's pointing out that at times effort is needed. Effort is important. It's necessary. The difficulty is kind of finding a balance. What's what's right effort? Our tendency our tendency is to go to extremes, one extreme. And actually, the, the Buddha pointed this out in his very first discourse. He, he pointed out how our tendency is to go to extremes. And he said, what I'm offering is the middle path, the path that doesn't go to the extremes. And so with effort, our tendency is to go to one extreme of just mm, bearing down and striving and striving and struggling and trying to get. And getting caught up in all of that, or the other extreme of just, oh, just let it be. Uh, I'll just sit here and just let it be. Whatever comes, I just let it be. You know, dullness and drowsiness come. I'll just let it be. Restlessness comes. Oh, I'll just let it be. And just, you know, just move whenever I want. Uh, <laughs> you know, discomfort comes. Oh, I need another cushion. I'll just go and get it. Or oh, I need a chair. I'll get it. Or oh, I need to walk. I- do that and just going to that extreme of just letting be and acting from that so what's the middle path what's what's the middle path a couple of days ago Brad and I went for a walk along the coast and um, and I was watching the birds and it was it was really beautiful watching. The birds just soaring on the wind, on the air currents, just wings outspread and just completely effortlessly, just floating and soaring. It was really wonderful to watch this effortlessness. And it it made me think of the meditation, how you know at times the we get into the, the body mind gets settled in a way that there's just a tremendous clarity and wakefulness, alertness, and, and sense of presence. And it's just completely effortless. It just flows along. And you know, people talk about being in the flow or being in the zone. And, and sometimes we experience that, and it's like the birds just soaring on the, on the currents, And I kept watching, and I noticed... I was watching this one bird, and I noticed that every now and then, just the tip of the wing would just kind of... (laughs) (laughs) Just a little flicker of the tip of the wing. The bird would be soaring, and it would just go... (laughs) And then the other wing would just go... And keep soaring, and a little bit later, just... (laughs) This is right effort. (laughs) Okay? This is right effort. It's just... Just the amount of effort, just what's needed, just to keep the balance, to keep the steadiness. And then I noticed that every now and then the bird would have to <laughs> flap the wings and a couple of flaps and up it goes, catches another current and soars. So right effort is, is applying the right amount of effort. It's a skillful use of effort so that we don't get drawn into the struggle and the striving. And we also don't sink into the just let it be, let it be, just be. You know, we, we, get, we very easily get into these dualities of being and doing and we see ourselves as in our in our lives outside of retreat as being very much doing, 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 which is what they what it is very often is just doing, 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 and then we come on retreat, and all of a sudden we stop and we say, oh, okay, i'm just going to be, just be, and then all of a sudden we feel so much tiredness, the tiredness of all the doing starts to show, and being means sleeping. <laughs> Just nodding off. This is <laughs> but this this is not being. <laughs> this is not being. So so this, this balance of, of being and doing, the the wise and skillful application of effort. And it's it's not it's not an easy thing. It's not an easy thing. It really takes I think it really takes a lot of awareness and a lot of experience. To we, we we give it, we give attention, and the more we give attention in the meditation, the more we can start to get a sense of when we 've gone too far with the effort or when we 've gone too far with the effortlessness yeah so so give attention to give attention to experiences through the day today so so how many how many have experienced a lot of dullness and tiredness today? <laughs> most most of us most of us have, have had that. So how have you been with it? How have you been? What's what's the response to dullness and tiredness? You know, has it been just to sit here and just <laughs> just n- <laughs> nod off? You know. I mean, the the dullness and tiredness comes. You just kind of sink and then get that jerk back up, and, uh, or has has the or has the response been? Oh, I'm just so tired. I, I I just have to go and lie down and have a rest, have a nap. Or has the response been? Oh, I have to just try harder. I have to really sit up straight and really and open my eyes and just really <laughs> really make effort to keep awake. That's what I'm here for. I'm here to wake up. Tendency to extremes. Tendency to extremes. So so what what might be wise effort? So I think I think wise effort might be, first of all, giving some attention just to the tiredness. Just to bring attention to the experience of tiredness. How does it feel in the body? How does it affect the breathing? What is tiredness? What is it that I'm calling tiredness? How do I know I'm tired? So bringing, bringing some interest, just bringing interest to the fact of tiredness, bringing this investigation factor, this can be a form of wise, skillful effort. You know, so you're not, not trying to get rid of the tiredness, not denying and not pretending it's not there, and also not just sinking into it. But give it attention. This is what is. And so we open to it. We give it attention. And as supports for that, as supports for, as supports for that giving attention, we can, of course, open the eyes, we can um, have a little bit of a stretch. We can um, stand up. Um, one little trick that I use sometimes is I'll just put my fingers like this. You know, just lock my fingers together and, and sit like this. And just the pressure of the fingers against each other can be just enough discomfort <laughs> to bring up a little bit of energy. And then I can look at the tiredness. And sometimes it's, it's, it's amazing how just taking interest in the tiredness and giving attention to the tiredness, the tiredness starts to go. Just that interest brings up an energy. And the tiredness is dispelled. Sometimes not. Sometimes give attention to the tiredness and it's just tiredness. Try standing up, try the the finger trip, the trick, try opening eyes, try going for a quick walk outside, then come and sit down and it's still there. So at that point, the wise effort may very well be, go and take a nap. You know, especially if, if you've come from a really busy time and you really are burned out, and many of us are. It may be that you really do need a nap, but not to just, as soon as tiredness shows, just, uh, go for that. And also not to get caught in, I have to stay up, I have to stay awake, I have to stay with this. Not to go to the extremes. Restlessness is another one. How many experience restlessness today? Either of body or of mind. How many experience both tiredness and restlessness <laughs> yeah so so restlessness is another one and with restlessness, you know there can be a, a tendency to try and just okay, I'm just gonna sit still and just apply that that striving, that effort, that struggle, that willpower just I'm just gonna stay still no matter how restless I feel. That's one extreme. The other extreme is just. Oh, oh, another phone. Oh, another cushion. Oh, oh, go for a walk. Oh, stand on my head. Oh, do some yoga. Go for a jog. Just, you know, just, um, oh, just think about everything I have to do. Mental restlessness. Just, you know, just let it go on. So that's that's the other extreme. So middle path. Middle path. And again, the middle path, I, I, I think, begins with looking at it, giving attention to it. So there's restlessness of body. Where is it in the body? Is the whole body restless? Is it everywhere? Is my baby finger restless? Is my nose restless? Are my ears restless? What is it I'm calling restlessness? Again, just bringing that attention to it and and again bringing attention in a way that it's not rejecting or denying or trying to get rid of it. It's not trying to change it. It's not trying to do anything with it. This is the effortlessness aspect. Not trying to do anything with it. But just that little flick of the wingtip to be present with it. And really allow for an opportunity to open to that. And sometimes in that, in that opening to it and giving it attention, sometimes it just dissipates. When we can give attention in a way that we're not holding on to something. And often with restlessness, that's what's happening. Often with restlessness, there is a holding on to something. Just give it some attention and see. But in the absence of that, in just just releasing and just allowing the restlessness just to be, we see that out of conditions it arises and out of conditions it passes away. Just like the breath arises and passes away. Okay, so... So we give attention, really giving attention to our experience to our actual experience, and bringing interest bringing this curiosity, bringing this investigation to it and just that just that act of bringing interest to it is wise effort All right effort, okay, so effort and and of course. The place for effortlessness and 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 with wise effort, effort and effortlessness aren't so far apart. They're not as far apart as they as they may seem to be. With, the, with our minds, we can really divide them up, and effort is really about struggle and striving and trying to get trying to get rid of and effortlessness is really about just just being. And they can seem very far apart. But with right effort and right effortlessness, they're not so far apart. They're both right down the middle. Okay, so this is, very briefly, this is the, the Eightfold Path. And, um, and real encouragement through the day, whether it's in the sitting or in the Qigong or at any time during the day, perhaps perhaps some some recall, some remembering of these aspects of the Eightfold Path, and just to see, okay, how does this apply? How can I apply this skillfully right now? And I just want to um just briefly mention I'll speak more about it tomorrow, but I just want to briefly mention um, a factor, a quality. That is very much a support for mindfulness, for effort, for effortlessness. It's very much a support for the the whole process of investigation, of inquiry, and that's um, in 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 Pali, in the the Pali language, the word is meta, metta, m e t t a, and metta it's most commonly we see it translated as loving kindness but the the actual the first dictionary translation of it is friendliness and i really can't overemphasize the importance of metta the importance of friendliness in the practice in the meditation when when friendliness when friendliness is present when metta is present the, 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 any effort almost naturally goes to right effort, to skillful effort. And effortlessness also will tend to go to skillful effortlessness. Metta, friendliness, is a real support for mindfulness. It's a, it's a, a tremendous support for calmness. Because metta, that that quality of friendliness, allows us to stay present with and to stay open to what is. And so metta also becomes a tremendous support for insight, for understanding. So tomorrow afternoon in the in the guided sitting we'll we'll explore metta more more thoroughly, more more closely, um, but, but really encourage you through the rest of the evening and through tomorrow morning to just from time to time remind yourself of friendliness and just see is in this moment is friendliness present toward myself? Is friendliness present toward this pain in my knee? Is friendliness present toward this tiredness? is their friendliness to this restlessness. And, this, this, and if this quality of friendliness is present, it will allow for opening to what is, to be present with it. And this, and this, this quality of friendliness makes a huge difference in the nature of the relationship And in making a a huge difference in the nature of the relationship, it makes a huge difference in the subject, which is you, and the object, which is what you're giving attention to. Metta has a tremendous power, tremendous power to, to, to affect our relationship in a way that the ending of dukkha, can come very easily. So really, really giving giving attention to this. And, uh, don't want to don't want to go on too much longer, but I just want to um, just want to relate um, a personal incident that that really showed for me the the, the power of of metta, and uh, it it. It occurred um a number of years ago I was in India and I woke up one morning with a stiff neck. And I had woken up other mornings with stiff neck and and you know, and I just go about the day and by you know, a few hours later or by the end of the day it's gone. I'm sure many of you have had this experience. You just sleep in not quite the right way, or your pillow's not quite right or something. You wake up with this stiff neck and Goes. So I woke up this morning with this stiff neck, and I thought, oh, stiff neck, no problem, you know, a couple of hours it'll be gone. And by the end of the day, it wasn't gone. And I woke up this morning, the next morning, and it was a little bit stiffer. And I thought, oh, it's a little stiffer, that's interesting, it's going to go away. And um, this went on and on (laughs) and on, and it didn't go away. And um, and it got to the point where it was incredibly painful, just unbelievably painful, and um, to the extent that it was very difficult for me. It was very painful for me to even pick up a glass of water. Just the the I, I can't I can't even now imagine how my, how painful it was. Um, and I ended up in a hospital in India and they put me in traction and they gave me muscle relaxants and they did all kinds of things to get rid of this stiff neck. They um they did they finally they did an MRI and they found that there were two bulging disks in my neck pressing against the nerve, and this was this was the cause of it. So started all these drugs and all this traction and all this stuff to get rid of it, anti-inflammatories. They threw everything at it, and um, didn't get better. So at, one point, at some point, I decided, okay, I have to go back to Canada and see my real doctor. <laughs> so I came back to Canada and made an appointment, and had a few days before I could get the appointment. So I, I went to, um, in those few days, maybe it was a week, I went to an acupuncturist, I went to a craniosacral therapist, I went to a psychotherapist, I went to an osteopath. <laughs> I was determined I was going to make it better. And I was doing everything I could think of. I was. I, I called a friend who was a herbalist, and I was taking all kinds of herbs, just everything. I'm going to make it better. And, um, of course, it still wasn't getting any better. And I, finally I got to see my doctor and went to the doctor and he asked me a bunch of questions and kind of tapped around and looked at the MRI and he said, you know, it might not get any better. And I thought, what do you mean? Of course it's going to get better. I'm going to make it better. (laughs) And um, I left his office and I went on with the craniosacral acupuncture the whole works. And um, a couple of months later, it was no better. In fact, it may even have been getting worse. and um, And one day I was um, out for a walk, and um, I remember it was a really bitter, cold winter day. It was freezing. and I'm out walking and 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 even walking was difficult. It was so painful, just the least movement of my of my head. It was just, oh. And I'm walking all tight from the cold and just tight from trying to protect this pain. And all of a sudden, it hit me. It might not get better. And um, and it hit me in a way that was different. when When I heard my doctor say it, Although he said, I heard the words, it might not get better, but what I actually heard him say was, it won't get better. And I took on the challenge. I was going to prove him wrong. I was going to make it better. And on this day when I was out for this walk in this cold, it hit me, he didn't say it's not going to get better, he said it might not get better. And that means it might. And that means, I don't know what's going to happen. And just in that moment, in that moment, there was a letting go. A letting go of all that struggle, of all that striving, of all that effort, of all that trying to prove him wrong and prove me right and make it better. And the struggle just, just letting go of that struggle. And I could feel, oh, the neck relaxed, shoulders relaxed, cold, what cold? Just a a relaxing and a a real freeing that came with that. The pain was all still there. Didn't change the pain one bit, but there's just this sense of, oh, anything is possible. And from then what what happened was it changed my relationship from one of trying to get rid of this pain and struggling with it and being an adversary of this pain to ah i better take care of it and the meta came the friendliness toward this pain and I kept doing, I kept doing the the acupuncture and the osteopathy and the cranial sacral therapy and all this stuff. I kept doing it all, but the attitude and the intention was completely different. Now I was doing it in order to take care of this. It was, I was being friendly and kind to the pain. Within two weeks, the pain was almost completely gone. It's just magical. Just just from that act of just letting go and being friendly, bringing in the metta, bringing in the kindness. So when you see yourselves struggling, when you see yourselves caught up in trying to get rid of, trying to change, trying to get, trying to become, just see if you can just remind yourself, ah, metta. Friendliness. Be kind and friendly to yourselves. And being kind and friendly again doesn't mean just oh okay I'll just do nothing. It doesn't mean oh okay I'm going to be friendly to myself and just go off and sleep for the rest of the afternoon. It's taking care and caring. Okay, it doesn't mean inaction. And it doesn't mean struggle and striving. It's the middle path, taking care. Okay, so, right effort, right effortlessness, mindfulness, curiosity, investigation, metta, all these are really essential qualities that we cultivate in the practice in the meditation and so a real encouragement in these days together to give attention to all of these and, and to allow to allow all of these to blossom and as these qualities blossom then the the insight will also come and the the freeing the liberation the ending of the dukkha will also come So let's sit together quietly for a couple of minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.